This message by Pastor Eric Ludy was given at the church at Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. As a ministry, we desire to see the return of strong, triumphant Christianity in the church today. We make these messages available free of charge for the purpose of strengthening the body of Christ and igniting bold faith in the hearts of believers around the world. The ministry of Ellerslie is made possible through the prayers and financial support of listeners like you. If you have been personally impacted by Ellerslie's messages, please consider partnering with us as we build world changers for Jesus Christ through gospel-centered discipleship. Visit ellerslie.com to learn more. Now, here's Pastor Eric Ludy. May our expectations grow to match yours, Lord. Lord, you are not sitting by fretting rubbing your hands together in anxiety. You know the political situation in our world. You know the financial situation in our world. You know it all. You know the moral breakdown in our culture. You are not fretting. The kings of the earth take their stand. The rulers of the the earth gather together to stand against the anointed one of heaven. But the one enthroned in heaven laughs. Lord, may we look up at your countenance and gain a clear picture of what our countenance should be. Lord, if you're not worried, if you're smiling, if you're laughing, may we do the same. Lord, I pray that you would establish your truth in our hearts. Speak to the depths of our being, deep unto deep, Lord Jesus, tonight. Please, this must not be a message from men to men, but from God to men. Speak to me. Lord Jesus, I pray that you would awaken us at a greater level, that you would stir us to action. Lord, may we not have a Christianity in the head, but a vibrant, real relationship that evidences itself in our life. We have great expectancy, Lord Jesus, tonight. May you do it. May you come and demonstrate to this world, starting here with us, who Jesus Christ is. Amen. You know, to be honest, I have very little idea how I'm going to put this message together. We've been going chronologically through the life of Christ. And we we broke it up into nine sections, which is somewhat ridiculous because, I mean, the, the life of Christ is so epic and grand that to even break it up, you know, you feel sacrilegious in in even doing it. And like I've said before, every true sermon that is going to be given in any true church is about the life of Christ. The life of Christ lived, imparted historically in the future. It's all about Jesus. The entire Old Testament is about Jesus. The entire New Testament is about Jesus. The whole thing, this entire idea of Christianity is about him, more of him, him getting his due, him shaping us into his image, this is what it's about. And so to break up a, you know, some series on the life of Christ seems rather uh, odd, but we're going through his actual life historically and bringing out key themes that basically encompass who he was and is, but who he was on earth and how he evidenced through his physical earthly life how we are to live. Because the life that is chronicled in Scripture is not accidentally captured. It's like, oh, that just happened to be what men witnessed. John 
said that if all Jesus said and did were captured in books, there would be too many to fill the earth. So in other words, what is chosen is specific. God wanted us to see this dimension of his life. He wanted us to witness these occurrences. He wanted us to hear these statements. And then when they are repeated over and over throughout the Gospels, you are getting the idea that this is important. Now, out of all the significance that can be found in the life of Christ, it is all building somewhere. Throughout the entire Old Testament, there is a foreshadow of one to come. There's a road sign saying, he will look like this. You will recognize him because he will do this. He will say this. He will suffer. He will die. It was all aimed towards the redemption towards a work that he was to come and accomplish. And that's what Eric gets tonight. How in the world? And guess what I get? Death, resurrection, and ascension? You've got to be kidding. In a short little message, this is impossible. I feel that way, though, no matter what theme I take on in Scripture. It doesn't matter what it is. It is so much bigger than a sermon can handle. To try and impart the fullness of the life of Christ through some measly little message seems like such a ridiculous way of trying to take what is in heaven and bring it to earth. But God does say it's through the foolishness of preaching. Through the foolishness of preaching that he seems to want to accomplish something. Why he chooses this, I have no idea. There's a lot better methods that we could come up with. Think about it. How about this one? An angel shows up in the corner of the room. And we're like, whoa! And then the angel says something like, behold, the Lamb of God. And then God appears. We fall on our faces and we believe, right? That's a lot easier method. And we're like, okay, God, why don't we do something like that? Because instead you got me up here giving some little smallish message. There's no glow coming out. There's no thunder I have spoken, and thunder has, you know, crescendoed in the background. But it wasn't me, but it did make me feel really good as I was doing it. But the point being, this is smallish, yet what we are talking about is massive. It is huge, and I feel like I'm doing a disservice to the hugeness of it by trying to even say it. Yet if I don't say it, you may not know it. You may never hear it. So I must speak, even though it's a smallish means of communicating this grand epic truth known as the cross. Everything in Scripture seems to aim towards it, the cross of Jesus Christ. There's a statement that has been haunting me for quite some time. And if you hang around me, you know that I'm always reading Reese Howell's Intercessor. It's just like this book sort of hangs out in the background of my life, and I always have it at my bedside, and I always pick it up. You know, every few nights I pick it up and read another chapter out of it. There's one thing in the very beginning of his spiritual journey that he describes, and it's just a statement. It's a way that he says it, which intrigues me. And he says, I saw the cross. This is a man who was groomed in a home that was biblically sound, had orthodox theology. He was around Christianity his entire life. He did ministry services constantly. He was a moral man. And then somehow in his 20s, he saw the cross. It's like, wait, wait. Well, what's the difference between what he's saying, seeing the cross, and what we all would understand, you know, we, we know about the cross? It has a tendency to be a historical account but it doesn't always generate 
whether it's tears, whether it's brokenness, whether it's joy, when you see the cross, it transforms you. That's one of the ways of knowing if you've seen the cross. Because you cannot stay the same if you recognize what that is. If you recognize what took place there, that what he is dying for, if you recognize it changes you wholly and completely, you are no longer the same. You realize that there was a purchase that took place in that cross. That blood that was shed was shed to accomplish something. Not to just accomplish something in a theoretical sense throughout history that, oh, it's good, and now we have good vibes that we can give to the world, and we can say good news that you are loved by God. God accomplished something, and it was something that was so critical that it be accomplished. But most of us don't fully grasp it. I'm not criticizing any of us. Because I say the same about me. I prayed this whole week and I said, God, have I seen the cross? Let's just start with me. I mean, that's all I care about. I don't want to be talking about something that I don't fully know. It's a hard thing. When someone uses a term, you know, that you've never used in your life, you have to wonder. It's like, okay, well, do I understand that? Like, if you ever heard the term filled with the Spirit, makes some of us uncomfortable, especially depending on what background we have uh, in our Christianity. Uh, For some of us, that's like, you know, absolute lunacy. But the point is, it's a biblical concept. You need to be filled with God. God must enter in and make this his house. Make these his hands. Make these his eyes. Make this his mind. Make this his heart. That's Christianity 101. But oftentimes, it's a lot further down the road than most of us ever realize because we've never seen it. We've never understood that. To be filled with the Spirit of God or to be filled with the life of God is a theoretical concept. We say, oh, I am. Sure, because I'm a Christian. Well, how come you don't live as if your life is filled with the life of God? Because if your life truly is filled with the life of God, guess what you're bearing? You're bearing fruit that resembles heaven. Every thought you have should be a heavenly thought. Every word you speak should be a heavenly word. Every action you do should be a heavenly action. That is what it means to be filled with the life of God. And that is the result of seeing the cross. So that's why you come back to this point and say, have I seen the cross? Well, then you could feel a little uncomfortable and say, how do you see the cross? That's exactly what Reese Howells was asking because someone said it to him too. And he said, I've seen the cross. And he was like, well, I know about the cross. This is exactly what he was. So it creates this domino effect. Now you're thinking, have I seen the cross? It's not a bad thing. Because it's very possible you have seen the cross. I'm not saying you haven't, but the point is it's okay to ask yourself the question. Is there something that I'm treating merely as a historical event which is actually supposed to be a very personal event in my life? That there is something about Calvary that is supposed to change me, not inform me, not get me correct in my doctrine, but change me. There's a, a line here, I don't know if you have your, your song notes, but it's the second verse of Come Thou Fount, which is the very last song on the front side of the page. And it's the very last line. He, to rescue me from danger, interposed his precious blood. That's, a, that's just a great line. <clears throat> there is danger. There is a high risk of eternal separation from God. And we are all exposed to it from the womb. We have no cure for this malady, this disease. 
And it is a rebellion. It's not something that is just thrust upon us where we are just vulnerable to this and we've caught a disease known as sin. We are willingly rebels against God's kingdom. We say, I want life on my terms. You know what God says to us? He says, you can't have life on your terms. There is only one way to live, and that is on my terms. Most of us have constructed a Christianity that enables us to still be in control of our life. Meanwhile, we're under the banner of being saved and having God. And I would like to propose the fact that you still may be functioning as a rebel against his kingdom agenda. We are meant to humble ourselves before the living God, surrender up this life, and say, it is no longer mine. You do with it, God, whatever you see fit. Okay, let's, let's get some raw materials out on the table, and then I would just like to bring them home. Isaiah 59, this is the first scripture in your notes tonight. This is a statement in Isaiah basically saying the world is falling apart here. Uh, is staring back at Israel, saying judgment is turned away backward, and justice stands afar off, for truth is fallen in the street, and equity cannot enter. This is a bad situation. Now, I don't know if you've felt this even in our political situation today. That isn't that far away, uh, far removed from where we are at. And I don't like to talk about those things. But one thing I can say to you, I, I used to teach constitutional law, and so I studied our form of government. I studied the history. I used to teach people. One of the, the lessons I had was teaching people how to think like a founding father. One thing I can say is we do not think like a founding father today. We are completely upside down in our thinking. And, I mean, talk about rolling over in graves. I'm not actually as concerned about the founding fathers rolling over in their graves as I am Jesus, uh, who's risen. Maybe I should say Paul rolling over in his grave. <laughs> in other words, I am more concerned about our spiritual foundation than our political foundations. But I have seen a massive breakdown in the political sector. Like, for instance, the way our government is set up in America is it's a representative government. We elect officials to represent our good or our interests. We can't all be back in Washington making a decision, so we elect those who we feel will represent what we need to have done in our life to protect our interests, whether that's against hostile nations outward or hostility inward. Like I always say to Hudson, you know, big meanies are the agents of the big, big meanie. You know, there's the big meanie, which is Satan, and then he has his big meanie cronies. Some of you have heard me talk about this many times, like, okay, we already know that. But there's some in here that haven't, okay? And uh, so there's like this little, like he was really confused when I was talking about Goliath being a big meanie. He says, well, how many big meanies are there? Well, he works for the big meanie, but he's a big meanie, okay? So uh, our government is to protect us. It's one of its purposes is to protect us from big meanies. We come up with a way of doing it, and the government is, is a part of that process. We elect people to represent our interests. I don't know how confident you are that anyone back in Washington is representing you well right now. You ever had that thought? We have so accepted a mediocre representation of us. 
we don't actually expect anyone back there to truly represent our Christian values anymore. It's like almost just a forsaking. It's like, you've got to be kidding. What I actually would want to have happen, oh, right. Like, I'm going to think that they are going to actually do it. Even those who masquerade as Christians to get our vote, we don't expect them to actually do much either. We just know that they probably won't be as bad as the other side. That's how bad it has gotten where we accept this fact that they are just politicians. Okay, now I'd like to propose a notion. And that is that Christianity is built on a premise that you need representation. You need someone to fight for your good. And if that someone is anything like the politicians of our day, then we are sunk We have to have an advocate, a representative for us that truly is after our good to make it spiritually. Because I tell you what, this is a rocky road spiritually in this world. There is nothing that's going to help you. There is one, and he has stood for us. And it's based on the fact that he is nothing like this world system that we even have hope to come together and talk about it tonight. Because I have complete confidence in his ability. And I know that when he gives me his word and he says, this is what I will do, he will vote that way. He will do it. He will enact the laws that he promises to enact. That is the difference between earth and heaven. But most of us actually want to try and get comfortable down here in this earthly system as opposed to getting comfortable in a heavenly one. Because when you get comfortable in a heavenly system, you no longer can be comfortable down here. That's the principle of how the kingdom of heaven works. And that is why I say, when you see the cross, it forces you to choose a side. It forces you to realize your rebellion. It forces you to realize you're like all those politicians out there. You're only after your good. This is about you. This really isn't about all the constituency that you represent. Just be honest about it. We all have our line. It's like, oh, and I'm, you know, here to bless, you know, people and God and all this. Let's be honest. We're like those politicians out there. Could you imagine if they actually came to all of us and said, yeah, we all really are all about ourselves. We don't care about you. No one's going to be honest. They'd lose our vote. We're afraid to truly be honest to the core to realize that we have stood against our God. We have sided with this world against him by being silent when we should be speaking, by being willing to stand when everyone else is sitting or slouching. We have sided with ease and comfort instead of with the kingdom of heaven. But I tell you what, there is only one kingdom that will stand in the end. There is only one kingdom that you can put your trust in. If you put your trust in this earthly kingdom, it will fail you. When those mountains start crumbling to the sea, when the earthly empires begin to be shaken, if you're holding on to that for your security, you have nothing. But if you enter into the kingdom of heaven, it doesn't matter what's happening around you. It doesn't matter if the financial system collapses. It doesn't matter if all the earthly terrain that you are standing upon is literally melting away. You stand firmly in, gripped in the strong hand of your God and you do not even fear. One of the statements that I have I have play over in my, my head oh, I mean, time and time again as a father is that my children will respond 
in a situation, in any crisis situation, to how I'm responding. Because they're not old enough to truly have a global understanding of what's taking place. They're not watching the news. They don't care about swine flu. They don't even know about swine flu. They never even heard me mention it. So they're not afraid of it. Isn't that a fascinating thought? Wouldn't that be a nice reality? Why would you even need to concern yourselves with it? A father, as a father, I know what they need to know. And I tell them no more than they need to know. There's no reason I I want to just strike a paralysis of anxiety in them. They don't watch the news. They don't read the newspaper. And daddy doesn't talk about horrible things in front of them. In other words, I'm not afraid of them knowing that there's big meanies out there. And these big meanies even want to hurt them. I don't mind them knowing that. I, I don't mind them knowing about evil and darkness, as long as they understand truth and light and who wins and who's more powerful and that when you resist the devil, he will flee. As long as you have a proper construct, I don't mind him knowing all sorts of things. But in a time of crisis, they look to their father's countenance. And if their father is anxious, if their father is fretting, if their father is fearful, guess what they automatically become? But if they see in that time of crisis perfect calm, on their father's face. Oh, they'll just go back to playing. Bombs could be dropping. Daddy, what's that big loud noise? Oh, those are just bombs. You're fine. Ah, that one hasn't been tested, okay? But the point is, is a basic principle. Spiritually, that's how we are to respond. We look to our father's face and everyone else in this world can look to us. One of the things, I, I did a, a moody podcast on it uh, a year or so ago, and actually, well, I'll tell you the story, and then I'll, I'll give the correction to it, but here's what it basically was about. Remember Y2K, which was actually 10 years ago now. Isn't that an amazing thought? It seems like it was just a couple of years ago, but 10 years ago, we had this whole 1999 into 2000 ridiculousness, and some of you remember it because, well, I'm guessing a whole bunch of you remember it. We actually try and act like, you know, oh yeah, that was no big deal. I never thought it was a big deal. No one had a clue what was coming. We had no idea. It was in the middle of winter here in Colorado. Okay, so you, there's a, you, know, that you have a few cans of beans down in the basement, a few water. You know, some people went to great extremes in that, and you might be one of them, but we won't bring that up and point at you. Uh, but no one knew what was going to happen. Okay, let's just be honest about it. <clears throat> Focus on the family opened up. They created a, they, it became a rescue shelter so that in Colorado Springs, if there truly was a catastrophe, that people could come and find shelter and food. Now think about that. How many of us were thinking about becoming a relief or a disaster shelter for the world around us when 1999 was turned into 2000? That's Christianity. Christianity is, I'm not concerned about my skin. I'm here to help everyone around me. Everyone else is concerned about their skin. That's normal. But Christians are concerned about everyone around in the glory of God. They're outward in their focus. That's a completely different way of living life. And that's what happens when you behold the cross. It changes you. It changes you at the depths of your being. It's no longer about you. What are you going to do when it turns uh, 2,000? I mean, who knows? So I'm going to be a relief shelter. What? Oh, I'm just going to be confident. And anyone who needs anything, they can. I'll help them find it. In fact, that could be a great opportunity to share Jesus. That's the attitude. It's not your skin and how you can save it. It's how you can spend it for his glory. So judgment is turned away and justice standeth afar off, for truth has fallen in the street and equity cannot enter. What's a God to do? 
And he saw that there was no man. And he wondered that there was no intercessor. Therefore, his arm, his arm brought salvation unto him, and his righteousness, it sustained him. Okay, now, I'm cutting out various pieces. You should have seen how many notes I had for this, and I made it one page. Okay, this is a huge theme in Scripture. But most of us don't see the applicability to our life. Now, let me see if I can go through this. An intercessor. An intercessor basically means one who fills the gap. If you have a walled city, and there is a hole in the walled city, you know, just this little part that is like broken down. It's like a pile of rubble, and actually, you can sneak through it. You know, there's a vulnerability in a time of war. If you have an enemy, what's an enemy looking for? The gate, to try and scale the gate. They're looking for breaches or holes in the wall. They're not stupid. They're not going to waste their time going, going through the front door when they can go through a side little broken down breach. So the enemy, by his very nature, is constantly watching the integrity of the wall. He's looking for holes. We have massive holes in our life that give the enemy access to do with our life what he sees fit to do. We can say, that's horrible. I'm a Christian. Yeah, you're a Christian with breaches. You are not supposed to be a Christian with breaches. That's one of the key definitions of Christianity could be a man or a woman who, whose walls are repaired, who is made strong. Why? So that they are useful to God and they're not just constantly inwardly fighting demons. They can be outward focused. God says to Israel, I will bless you so that you can become a blessing to the nations. God's pattern is to make you strong so that you're useful. There's a, in the Welsh Revival, there was sort of a, a teaching. It makes it sound like it's an unbiblical teaching. There was just, it was an idea that was a metaphoric idea, and I'm going to give it to you here, uh, that they taught on faith. Basically, three stages to the development of faith. The first phase is sort of the drowning phase where you realize, see, most of us don't realize in our sinful state, because there's a haze when we're in a sinful state. We honestly don't realize that we're dying. We, we feel actually healthier. We're, we're happy at a certain level when we're living in sin. And then one day we come to a dark night of our soul and we realize the impoverishment of our soul. And we recognize that we're like at sea in the middle of all these high crashing waves and we have no buoy. We have no life support and we are drowning. And it's inevitable. You can only hold on for so long, and you are dying. And that is a scary feeling. I don't, I've never been in this situation in the high sea, you know, in a, in a time of storm, when the waves are crashing over you, and you're starting to gulp in water, and you're realizing you're about to die. I mean, that wouldn't be a, a nice situation, but that is literally what the awakening to our soul condition is supposed to be like. It's supposed to literally cause us to cry out, to say, help, help, help. Help! In comes the message. You see, if that person never finds out that there is help out there, guess what? They'll never know where to call, where to direct their voice. They'll never know where to swim towards. But there is help out there, and yours truly is one of the people assigned to give that message to the sinking, to the dying, to those that are struggling in the waves. And that is, if you call Upon Jesus Christ, there is a ship nearby and he will find you. But you need to call out to him and he will come to you. 
and he will rescue you. It's a guarantee. But you must call to him. You must believe that he's out there and you must call to him. And so then that first phase of faith, that first dimension of faith is actually believing that there is someone out there who for some reason wants to help you. For some reason, he loves you and wants to come to your aid. And so in that death struggle, you call out to Jesus Christ. And the most amazing thing is, suddenly, out of seeming nowhere, there is a ship right there, and you are clinging to the side. And thus you enter into the second phase of faith, clinging. In the clinging stage of faith, which is where most of us in this room probably are, you find that you are no longer sinking. And there is a jubilance of soul when you first start clinging. It's like, oh, I'm alive. I'm not dead. There is hope, and it's eternal. This is great. But you're clinging to the side of a boat. I mean, half your body's still in the water. But hey, I'm out of the, I'm not sinking. My death struggle is at least ended. But here's the funny thing. There's people sinking all around you, and you don't have the ability to let go of this boat to help them. And so in the clinging stage of faith development, you realize your impoverishment of your own inability to actually do anything for the kingdom of heaven. You realize that people are dying, but you are not strong enough in your own life to help them. What should you do? You know, one of the things it says in Scripture is that we are literally to be strong for others, that we are to be servants and considering others' needs above our own. Well, does that mean we let go of the ship and sink and push them up and we die and they, they get out? Well, you know, Paul's uh, prayer in the beginning of Romans 9 could hint towards that, but that's a little different. God has a better plan. In Romans 8, it says that we are to be more than conquerors. Now, I don't know how many of you even feel like a conqueror spiritually, let alone more than that. You follow me? In other words, I would say survivors. Could you imagine in Romans 8, this triumphant uh, chapter, it's like, and you are to be survivors. And then, you know, one of us is like, oh, I think in the Greek it says more than survivors. We're like, oh, praise God, more than a survivor. That's at least something. No, no. It doesn't even just say conquerors, triumphant conquerors. It says more than that. So think of how Napoleon, Alexander the Great, were in battle. Think about how they just laid the enemy flat. They came in and literally raised to the ground, which means to flatten. I know that sounded, that was probably the wrong word to choose, but it means to literally decimate whatever enemy they that's tried to stand against them. They humiliated them. They were running high tail. Imagine that spiritually. Oh, but more than that, because it's more than a conqueror more than an Alexander the Great spiritually. What in the world is that? That's just a baseline promise to this Christian life when you behold the cross. And you realize that I cannot settle for just clinging to the side of a boat and living just to survive. The next degree of faith is rising up to say, God, you made this life and you have called me for more than just to save me. You have rescued me so that I could become a rescuer. And suddenly, you find yourself 
in the boat with two hands free to lean over the side of the boat and pull people in. That is what the cross will do for you. The cross does not leave you drowning. It rescues you. And it also doesn't leave you clinging to the side of the boat. It pulls you in. When you behold the cross and you behold the resurrected Christ and when you behold the ascended Christ who sits at the right hand of the Father, you no longer will just remain where you are. You will say, God, do it all within me. For your glory, make me strong. Make me strong to give. God is looking for an intercessor, someone who will make up this breach, who will make up, there's all sorts of terms in Scripture. Hedge is another term, which is sort of that brambly type of bushy hedge that goes around a garden, or it's an enclosure of some kind. For instance, it says of Job, when Satan was complaining of the fact that he couldn't access Job, he had to come to God and ask for permission. Why? Because Job was hedged in. Well, we don't hedge things in anymore. I mean, maybe you have a nice little hedge along your yard, but it's not the same thing. It's not an, for instance, if you really wanted to climb over your hedge, you could. But a hedge is not supposed to be something that you can climb over. It's supposed to be difficult. It's supposed to be the type of thing where you get in and it's all thorny and no one really wants to do that. And so a hedge is important and the enemy cannot get through a hedge. Obviously, Satan was acknowledging that himself. And so when there is a breach in the hedge, God says, I need someone to make up the hedge. Which means he is looking to and fro throughout the earth for someone who isn't so self-focused that they're just trying to survive themselves, but someone who's ready to spend their life to protect whatever is inside that hedge. Because for some reason, there is some value within that hedged area. And God says, that's the reason I want to hedge there is because I want to protect this. But right now, that wall is not completely built. So I am looking for someone who is strong, who can make up that hedge while it is being finished and while this wall is being finished. In your life, it is very likely that you have a broken down wall in places. Some of you might not have any wall. And the enemy is literally using you as a plaything. And he is throwing you up in the air and stomping on you when you come back down. And you're frustrated with God because of it. It's not God. It's the enemy. And it's disobedience in your life. You are not in a correct pattern. God lays out in Scripture how our life can be strong. But most of us want to come up with our own prescription. And modern Christianity has all sorts of special ways that we can live on the throne of our own life, our way, and somehow be strong spiritually. It doesn't work. You cannot be strong spiritually and live in in discord with Scripture. There's only one way to be strong in your spiritual life. The recipe has been given by God himself. So follow it, and you will find that your walls will suddenly be repaired. One of the best prayers you can pray in your life is, God, show me my breaches. That sounds funny. That sounds like one of those things, like bloomers. or uh, God, show me my bloomers. Uh, is that a breach? Is that britches? That's what it is. That's what it makes you think of. God, show me my britches. It's like, no, that wasn't what I just said, though. God, show me my breaches. Where is it in my life that the enemy has unhindered access and I'm basically letting him in? If there was someone, an evil, big, meanie guy that was banging on my door of my house and I just opened the door to him and said, well, come on in and do what you want with my family. Who would be responsible for that? God or me? Because God says, keep the guy out. Don't let him in. When he knocks, you say, no, thank you. 
go away. You're not bugging me and my family. That's the right response. But guess what? If I open up the door, is it appropriate to then blame God? No, I'm the one that opened it. God has already prescribed. He says, Eric, keep these out of your house. Take me serious. What Hudson Taylor described seven steps downward and seven steps upward in the spiritual life. If you want to start eroding your spiritual life, the first step downward was trifling with sin, which means to take it lightly. Don't take it as if it matters that much. All these legalistic Christians out there, they take sin so seriously. We, we have a more of a grace church where we sort of just enjoy life and we just sing nice songs to God and we talk about nice things. Well, that's not going to do anything for you. Truth does something for you. And if God says don't do it, then I would suggest you don't do it. Now, what you're going to find out in trying not to do it is that you're going to have very little capacity to live this Christian life, which is why you need the grace of God to enable you to live it, which again comes back to the fact that you're sinking and you need a savior. You need a rescuer, which is what this message is about. There is a hedge that is supposed to be built up around your life, and it very likely isn't. You need a strong man. You need someone who can step in and fight off that enemy to make you strong so that you can start focusing outward instead of on your own issues. Most of us as Christians, the church is so weak because we have literally less than 1% of our time that is able to focus outward because we are so caught up in our issues and our difficulties. Even the healthiest among us, we have issues. We have difficulties, whether it's relational, whether it's financial, whether it's health, we have issues. And there's a dying world out there. You know that 150, estimated 150,000 people died and went to hell today? And let's think about this. What did we all do about it? Well, that's not, I can't be responsible for 150,000. I'm not saying you should. But I'm saying, what did we do about it? Did we take a step forward in beginning to do something about it? Or are we just stemming the tide from our life falling apart even more than it is? We are living on the defensive instead of the offensive. What we need is the same thing God was looking for back then. The walls are broken down. The city is in in disrepair. Israel is, is without a defender. Where's the intercessor? You know who Jesus Christ was? In a nutshell, he's the intercessor. He's the man who stands in the gap. He's the strong man who came and took the full blow upon himself so that we could gather our wits spiritually and awaken and say, I'm in. Thank you for rescuing me. Literally, he took the blow. Everything that was aimed right at you to absolutely decimate your life, he took it square on. Without even a whimper, he took it for the joy that was set before him because he valued you so much. He took the blow. See, one of the things that happens with the life of Jesus, we have a tendency to make him a mousy character. We have a tendency to diminish his manly strength. We have a tendency to talk about him carrying lambs and little children, which is a wonderful quality of Jesus, by the way, and forget about the fact that he carried a whip into a temple. And that in Revelation 19, I always have to get Revelation 19 in, He is literally has swords coming out of his mouth, crowns upon his head, and his vesture dipped in blood, and his thigh has a tattoo on it. This is our God, and he is a man, and he is a man who fights for his own. One of the most important things for you to see tonight 
is the strength of your God to fight for you. Because one of the number one things that happens when you start to relay truth about the state of the soul, we start to carry the weight ourselves. It's like, I don't, I've tried and I just, I keep coming back to this. It's a cycle. It's a cycle. Turn to your God. You have to believe that he's as big as he says he is. He is the God who took the full brunt, not just of your hit, but of the entire world. He took it all. We're talking about the manliest, manliest man ever. He took it all. Could you imagine the heroic scene that this would be if we could see it in the spiritual realms? I mean, David, it says that Saul killed his thousands, David his tens of thousands. There was a scene that I've relayed many times. You know, David took on a lion. He took on a bear. Then he took on the greatest warrior single-handedly by himself in all of the world at that time. I mean, literally the greatest warrior, uh, nine to a 12-foot giant, depending on which commentary you end up reading and how tall this guy was. Either way, it's huge. David takes him on, and suddenly he's credited with slaying tens of thousands. You know, it literally says that he would run on a troop. Could you imagine running on a troop? It's like, hey, guys, what's taking you so long? <sighs> running square into it. When the Philistines started marching against Pazdamin, a little patch of barley and beans, it says all of Israel fled. But David stood. David was willing to stand against an entire army by himself. So I don't know if you can gather the picture here, but if you could imagine literally a monstrous army approaching and they're all headed to snuff out your life, you have no hope. And David stands up, draws his sword and says, you go no further. You know that they never got, the Philistines didn't get that land? David fought them off. He had the help of Eleazar and Shammah. Three against an army. That is incredible. This is a foreshadow of something. It doesn't matter how big that army was. I mean, David slew his his tens of thousands. Jesus slayed his billions. We are talking about the greatest warrior of all time. In the Old Testament, the term is Lord of hosts, the captain of captains, the general of generals. And he's a general that led his troops into battle with his own life. He's the one that did it. All the other, the rest of the army was cowering in the background. They couldn't fight this army. And he stood up single-handedly and defeated them. That is our intercessor. That is our king. And the same way that he stood for you then, I want you to know, he still stands for you now. For some reason, we have a blur over the fact that he stood for us then, but now it's up to us. There's only one way to make your Christianity work. And that's to have him work it. He has to be the one to stand for you. Every moment of every day. The time of crisis comes when you take that sword up and trying to fight off the enemy. That enemy bows to Jesus and does not bow to you. You'll find that out. The only way you scare off this enemy is in the name of Jesus. It is not in your name. He doesn't cower before you. He cowers before Jesus. I've given this illustration before. But you come into a little cage with a lion after seeing the lion tamer and the lion tamer standing on his neck. You know, it's just like, hey, look world, this lion is obedient to me. And so you're thinking, that's not very hard. And so you come in and you do the same thing. You stand in the same posture. That lion eats off your leg. That lion has no respect for you. However, if you are in that same cage with the lion tamer, you can stand there. And that lion won't do anything because he fears the lion tamer. And that lion tamer is abiding with you. 
That is the key to Christianity. You need a mighty lion tamer in the cage with you. Ezekiel 13 says, You have not gone up into the gaps, neither made up the hedge for the house of Israel to stand in the battle in the day of the Lord. Ezekiel 22 said, And I sought for a man among them that should make up the hedge and stand in the gap before me for the land that I should not destroy it, but I found none. There's multiple dimensions to this message. One is, Jesus was the gap filler. Jesus was the intercessor. But also, Jesus is the intercessor. We read this next statement. This is in Hebrews. I, am, I almost made this entire thing a read-through of Hebrews. Not, I, would, I, I had little chunks out. It wasn't going to be an entire uh, 13 chapters. I was going to read through these key selections, and I was going to bring out the theme of Hebrews of the high priest. Jesus is the high priest. You do a search in the Greek on the words high priest after the Gospels end, because it talks about Caiaphas, the high priest, in the Gospels. In other words, it's a character, an actual figure in, in Jewish history. But after, when it starts talking about the doctrine of Christ, the only time it's mentioned is in Hebrews. It's sort of strange to think about that. But in Hebrews, it's a key theme. And for, if, if, say, Paul wrote Hebrews, he definitely is trying to get a point across here. Yet, when you think about Jesus being a king and a priest, which one's more impressive to you? Well, you know, the fact that he's a king, at least as a guy, it's like, yeah, he's a king. He's a high priest. It's like, yay. I'm glad about it. I mean, the fact that he made propitiation for my sins, the fact that he has done all this is very important to me. Don't get me wrong. But it's like theoretically or systematically or doctrinally important to me. But the fact that he's a high priest doesn't actually resonate at the emotional level where I want to sing a song about him being my high priest. Now, I do want to sing a song about him being my mighty champion, that Lord of Lords, King of Kings. I love that stuff. But high priest, you're my high priest. It doesn't, it's not the same thing. So I prayed this entire week, God, what's wrong on the high priest thing here for me? Because Paul is so interested in this high priest thing, and he's saying, don't you realize? Don't you realize who your high priest is? This is no earthly high priest that you have. Now, the high priest is the one that stands in the gap. The high priest is the champion. He's the one who understands the infirmities, the weakness of the people, and who stands up to make the sacrifice on their behalf. He's a gap filler. He's an intercessor for the people. And as long as Israel had a mere human high priest, they were only stemming the tide. They were surviving. They weren't thriving. They were not more than conquerors. But do you understand, church? This is what Paul is saying throughout Hebrews. We don't have such a high priest. We we have God on our behalf offering a sacrifice for our sins. Do you realize what this means? And the same God that made the sacrifice of his own blood. Do you understand his seriousness? It was his own blood. This same God has not left you. This same God who has purchased you is not about to abandon you when it cost him his blood to get you. He's not sitting up in heaven with his arms folded saying, figure it out. He's saying, just call. Your mighty conqueror is ready and willing. But you must ask You must ask me to come in. You must ask me to stand for you. Do what I tell you to do, and I will stand for you. 
So in Hebrews, this is the one paragraph that I picked out of the whole thing. So this better be a good one because I had some great ones that I cut out. But this one was made priest with an oath by the one who said, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. Remember how he goes through, oh, if you've ever, if you've ever read uh, Hebrews, he goes through the whole Melchizedek thing, and most of us are like falling asleep and drifting off. It's like, who cares about this? After the order of Melchizedek, why does this matter? Because it's a higher order. It is a heavenly order. It is not an earthly order. As it, Paul makes it clear, even the line of Aaron, which is the line of the priests, paid tithe to this order. In other words, it's the inferior that pays tithe to the, to the greater Do we realize that all this Jewish system that we've applauded and we say, oh, it was done so well, it was earthly still. It was merely a shadow of something. But we get the actual something. The actual something has come to this earth. Everything else was a type of it, a shadow of it. But the actual something known as Jesus Christ came and stood for us. He was the sacrifice. He did the work. And it's a better work than any blood of lambs and bulls could have ever done. It truly will accomplish the work, and it doesn't just deal with a covering of sin. It deals with the root problem of sin, so you don't need to behave the way you have been behaving anymore. You don't need to think those thoughts anymore. You don't need to think that way towards other people. You don't need to live in such a selfish way anymore. You don't need to be under the thumb of the enemy. You can live with victory from this day forth. Who doesn't want that? Why in the world have we come up with a gospel in our age that literally diminishes this fact? And it says, well, you don't want to get people's hopes up if you tell them about victory. It is literally church incorrect today to talk about triumph and victory in the church. You know, you have to be careful. That gets people's hopes up and then it disillusions them because then they're still struggling with their sin. Well, then their life isn't built around the pattern because I can guarantee you, you follow Jesus, you allow that intercessor to come in and do his work, and it works. That is the guarantee, not even just from me, it's from the Word of God. And God is faithful. In fact, one of the statements, I don't have it in here, but it literally says this in Hebrews. It says, based on two key things, you have a sure hope that should be the anchor of your soul. And that is that your God cannot lie. And not just that, but He has promised. Think about this. He cannot lie, and he has promised. That should be the anchor of your soul. And when anyone pushes against it, when the circumstances of your life push against it, you stare back and you say, my God can't lie. It is impossible for our God to lie. Do you believe it? That's the other theme in Hebrews. Paul lays out this entire argument for the fact that you have a sure foundation. And that this Jesus Christ can save you, not just save you, covering over your problem to get you through the gates, but he can save you to the uttermost and make you a whole and complete man. That's the work of the cross. And when you behold the cross, that's what you see. You gain a vision for what can happen in your life. And you don't need to live this way anymore, giving glory to the enemy. Because that's what it is. When you live in defeat, you're giving glory to the enemy. The enemy's boasting, saying, look, God promises God obviously is a liar because his church is a testifier of it. They know God can't do this. The enemy is parading the church around culture today and saying, look at this. God is a liar. Either that or he's bogus. This cannot be any longer. 
It is up to us as individuals to believe that God is a performer of that which he promises. And if he's promised, we can take it to the bank that he cannot lie. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. I love the word guarantor. It's a guarantee. It's a guarantee. In other words, you can take it to the bank. It is solid. And if you build your life around it, you are guaranteed in all the promises, which in Hebrews it says are better than the Old Testament promises, which, by the way, aren't that bad. If you go through Deuteronomy and look through the list of promises that come through obedience, they're actually really good. These are better. These are grander for the soul. They don't just affect the outward man where your crops don't die and your cattle live. These change the soul, and the enemy cannot touch the soul. So no matter what he does, you're like that little fossil in resin. Hits you with a sledgehammer, and the fossil doesn't move. It is stable in the hand of God, and him is a refuge and a rock. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But Jesus holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. This is actually incredible news to you. Our God didn't just come and do his work, and now he's like distracted up in heaven because there's also, heaven's just a nice place, and down here it's miserable. So he doesn't want to focus on this down here. You ever had that in your life? It's like, I don't want to even think about that anymore. Well, if we think that, how much more do you think God should be thinking that right now? It's like, I already did my work. I gave them what, they, what I gave them, which was my own life. And if they don't want it, that's up to them. This is actually a fairly logical thing that could happen, okay? But we are assured of the fact, and this is why it's important, that he has not forgotten us. And he, he continues to hold the same love that brought him here to this earth for us. The same love that moved him to literally give up his life, he still has it for you. And that love is extended to say, I will fight for you. And I will be in this office of a priest, of your high priest, of your intercessor, continually forever. You will never lose me when you choose me, is what he's saying to us. Consequently, listen to this, as a result, that's what consequently means, as a result of all this, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Consequently, as a result of the fact that he didn't just come and then say, okay, that was a rough ride. I'm risen from the dead. Now I'm going to heaven. I'm out of here. Okay, guys, you're in charge now. This whole doctrine's built on that premise. That basically, it's our mind, it's our willpower, it's our human discipline that needs to follow the Word of God and live it because the canon's closed. In other words, there's no spiritual deposit from heaven anymore to enable us to live. If we don't have the impartation of God, there is absolutely no possibility for imitation. I'll say it again. If we do not have the impartation of God, it is absolutely impossible, unequivocally impossible, to imitate your God. The only way to imitate is to have him living his life in and through you. It's not you. You can't imitate God. He's the one that does it in and through you. That's the key to Christianity. You remove that, you remove the engine from the car, and you're trying to figure out, kicking the thing, why doesn't it run? Why doesn't this thing work? Because your life is still your own. And God bought it. The only way to see it work is to let him have it back. 
For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest. Now compare this. The intercessor, our intercessors politically, you know who we're talking about out in Washington. Match them against this list. Holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. A little different list. We must be grateful that our God's kingdom is not anything like this world's kingdom. Could you imagine how miserable that would be if we were saying God's just playing politics with me? I asked him a straight question, and he's given me some roundabout answer. I'm like, God, I just want to know, what does it take? What does it take to, to spend eternity with you? And he gives some roundabout, fluffy answer, you know, throw clouds over here, and you know, throws a storm over here, and we're like, oh, there's a storm. And, run, and we're like, wait a minute, I was asking him a question. That isn't our God. Our God is straightforward. He says, you want to know something? I'll talk with you. Come, let us reason together. I have nothing to hide. One of the things I've, I've always said is that the word of God is a safe place. It doesn't feel that way all the time. But God isn't afraid of you looking square into the word of God and testing it for what it is. If it doesn't match with, with reality, throw it out. He's not afraid of it. He knows you can test it and test it and test it, and it will prove itself true every time. If you want the word of God to be wrong, you'll come up with some selfish reason to make it wrong. But if you truly humble yourself before it, it's the most supernaturally amazing book ever. The reason I have such a confidence in my God is because I have such a confidence in his word. I have spent so much time just looking at the supernatural nature of the word of God, and it has transformed my confidence in God. If you have no confidence in the word of God, guess what that directly affects? Your confidence in God. If you think it's a shabby book put together by a whole bunch of just, you know, men that had an agenda, well, guess what? Your God is shabby. And your God has no power to save you. And he's truly not going to be your mighty man that you call on in a time of need. Because in a time of need, you're going to come down to the bare bones of what you truly believe because you need to make a decision quick. And you're not going to waste any time calling upon God if you need to rise up and do something yourself. That's where it will prove itself. And unfortunately, it will be in your most desperate moment. He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. The final portion of this that I want to bring as sort of a driving mo a, a push or a, a thrust in the soul, you have a mighty intercessor who is willing to continually stand for you. He ever lives to make intercession for you, which means there's, there's a statement. I had four other scriptures that I, I didn't include uh, in my little list to keep it to one page. Aren't you impressed with my one page? Uh, but I had to cut out some really important things. You know, Jesus said to his disciples, it is better for you or is expedient that I go to the Father. It is better for us. <laughs> Okay, how many of us actually believe that? Now, we know the Scripture, and we nod along, and we say, well, you know, that was his opinion. It's probably better for him. He gets to hang out in heaven. 
So he's probably just sort of throwing a little uh, spin on the situation to try and make it seem like it's better for us. But how could it possibly be better for us? Jesus could be down here, but no, it's better for us that he goes to the Father? What? What kind of logic is that? What's he doing? He sat down at the right hand. The position of authority is given to him. What is he utilizing his authority for? He is making petitions to the Father. Why prayer in the heavenly economy matters is strange to our, our minds, okay? I understand that. But Jesus is praying, and he is making petitions to the Father just as he did. It's called the high priestly prayer in John 17. The high priest's prayer, the, the prayer of intercessor, the prayer of the one who stands in the gap and says, protect these. God has his eye on you. Jesus has his eye on you. And it is better that he is there. You know what grace is? Grace is the intercession of God. The result of Jesus going to heaven and sending forth his spirit. It's the work of grace in you to keep you on the narrow way. To cultivate the life of Jesus Christ. To convict you of sin. It's the work of Jesus at the right hand of the Father. He is working within you to protect you, to enable you, to build you stronger. And if you allow that grace to come in and save you, to rescue you in your every daily moment, you will find a robustness in your soul. It's the intercession of your king. He is a king and a priest. That is an incredible combination that we must capture. And if you don't fully capture it, pray to capture it. If you're not seeing the cross, pray to see the cross. I haven't even hardly scratched on the fact that he rose from the dead. Jesus Christ rose from the dead. The grave could not even keep him down. He not only defeated the enemy, but he rose up triumphant, and he says, I'm behind you. Go, I'll be your rear guard. And he's also our front guard. We just sort of go along like little lambs, and the shepherd's knocking away all the, the wolves and the bears and the lions, and we're like going along going, yay, all right. And we're feeling like we're doing it somehow. I remember seeing that the Broncos finally won their Super Bowl uh, way back when, you know, the first one. And I remember on the back of, I got this memorabilia, uh, uh, what do you call it? I want to say memorabilia, but it's like some special, what, what's commemorative, that's the word. It's a commemorative thing on it. And on the back, it's this Coke ad of this big, big guy there with a the belly. And he has this like straw going into his Coke thing. And uh, he said, uh, yeah, we did it. Uh, you know, we finally did it. But it's like, it's what it is, the picture of some guy who's drinking Coke, cheering on the team, and he feels like he personally did it. I know the feeling. I felt like I helped them because I was standing during the third quarter. That's very critical. If I stood in this way, then they would somehow pull it through. That's, almost, that's an equivalent of what a spiritual victory is. Who's the one that's going to win this? He is. And he's already done it. And all we need to do is be a conduit to allow him to continually do it through our lives. But who's the one that's going to win the victory? It's him. The moment we start losing is the moment it comes back on us and we diminish the strength of our intercessor. The moment we diminish him and we say, he's not big enough to do this, I'm going to have to do it, is the moment our spiritual lives start to fail and we can't figure out what's wrong with us because we left the engine back in the parking lot. We keep the engine in. Jesus Christ is our power. Jesus Christ is our strength. That is what will pull us through. Jesus Christ has a call on every single one within the church of Jesus Christ. Every single one. There isn't 
such a thing as bonus Christianity. It's like, oh, well, they were the special ones that somehow got into the boat and had both hands set free to be able to help. There is not one exception among you. You are every single one of you called to be rescuers, to be intercessors in this generation. The same way he was looking to and fro back then for who will stand in the gap and make up the hedge. We have a dying nation. A dying nation. We have a dying church which is limping along with absolutely no power. No power. No one is threatened by the church of Jesus Christ in modern America. No one. It's a laughing stock. Back in Acts, the church was not a laughing stock. Even within the church, there was a fear of God upon it. Ananias and Sapphira fall over dead because they lied to the Holy Spirit. Could you imagine if this came back into the church? Could you imagine what would happen if the fear of God once again descended upon the body of Christ? If we actually lived this instead of just talked about it and sang songs about it. But we lived it. We allowed the living fire of Jesus Christ to come in and have us, to consume us, and to change us. It starts with a simple belief that your God is able That your God is able to bring that ship to you so that you can grab a hold of it. And then your God is able to lift you into that ship and take you out of all the mire that you've been in and free these two hands to make you a rescuer. Every single one of us is called to be a rescuer at some level. Every single one of us. When that enemy hounds your family, it's my job as as a father I give my life to defend my family. I will make up the hedge. In a church, David, when one of his sheep was taken by a lion, you know that he was anointed king of Israel, and he wasn't given the position yet, so he said, these sheep are my Israel. I'll give my life for them. And he made up the hedge, broke the lion's jaw. It's an incredible scene. That's making up the hedge. And all of us here, when a, when a lamb gets taken from our flock... Say one in this church is suffering. Do we have any wits about us spiritually to even care? It's like, hey, you know, I I can't deal with that. I have my own issues. That is Christianity. If you measure this body here, which is, I mean, new. We're just starting. We're in this building for the first time. So it's not like how in the world advanced could we expect to be. But the point is, if we're going to grow and be saved to the uttermost, we need to become a body that is thinking about every single one around us, as opposed to ourselves. Coming to church going, I need to be prayed for this week. What about who can I pray for this week? Just a different mindset. No, I'm not a a big uh, John F. Kennedy uh, fan, but it's not what this country can do for you, but what you can do for your country. It's not what this church can do for you, but what you can do for Jesus Christ and this church. Think of that attitude shift of instead of clinging to a boat saying, someone feed me, my hands are tied to the, to the side of the boat, saying, who needs rescued? Who needs help? Who needs me to stand in the gap and take the hit? Who needs it? Because I'm ready and willing to spend my life for Jesus Christ. Lord Jesus, you are our champion. Lord, I want to see it in a greater way, to a greater measure. I want to be changed by it. Every fiber, every cell within my body, I want it to bend its knee and have it cry out, you are Lord. Lord, you are so good. Your victory is sound, but you have not departed. You have not left us to fend for ourselves. 
it was beneficial and expedient that you went to the Father because you sent forth the grace of God. You sent forth the mercies of God. You sent forth the very life of God himself to inhabit us and to take us and to form us and to shape us. Lord, I yield to you. And I say, have this body afresh. I commit before all of this church and I commit before the heavenly realms and I say, my life is not my own. It belongs to my king. And Lord, may I not touch it. May I not put my selfish, fleshly fingerprints on it. May you have it. May you use it for your glory, for your honor and your praise. Lord Jesus, you have begun something here at Ellerslie. And I pray that this idea of you being our strong man would be a centerpiece and that we would become strong men and women for this dying world around us. Lord Jesus, for you and your glory, we pray this. Amen. We hope you have enjoyed this message by Pastor Eric Ludy, delivered at the Church of Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. Feel free to make copies of this message, but do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without expressed written permission. For more information about us or to help support the ministry of Ellerslie, we invite you to visit us at ellerslie.com, E-L-L-E-R-S-L-I-E.com. Please know that you are not alone in this battle for truth, and we are cheering you on down the narrow way of the cross.